Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Hello and welcome. Uh, with me again is John Stepek. You know, he's so fun to talk to. I think we might end up talking to him more than we had originally expected on this podcast. John, hello. Hi, Bern. That's very kind of you. I like to hear that. Well, it's nothing, nothing to do with me. Apparently the listeners like you. <laughs> That's very kind of them. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, listeners. it's all about the downloads. <laughs> now, listen, John and I are fresh from doing a um, Twitter spaces on housing, house prices in the UK. How bad is it going to be? John made a, a very um, exciting forecast that house prices will fall at least 30%. You did say at least, John. Uh, I think, I think it- that's rash is the word that you were looking for rather than exciting. He would not give us a time frame on that because he has been in this game a long, long time. So he's not going to tell us a year, two years, three years, but it's entirely reasonable to think that house prices could fall by that much over the next couple of years. And with that in mind, I was reading the weekend newspapers, bit behind as usual, but I was reading them. And there was an article about house prices in Cornwall. And there was one little bit that jumped out at me, which said that there was um, an attempt to purchase a house in Cornwall, £500,000. And the rate that the buyer was paying on his mortgage has gone up from just over 2% to just under 6%. And as a result, the seller had had to give up 8% of the price, which is really interesting because it just demonstrates exactly what we always say, John, you know, rates up, prices down because it fundamentally changes affordability. So prices have to come down by the same amount, give or take, that, that your monthly mortgage goes up in percentage terms. So yeah, there we are. Exactly. And I mean, that's one reason why I guess for all that, yes, it's a bit rash to put an exact number on it. 30% doesn't sound that unreasonable, especially because Bank of England just released its financial stability review. And uh, one of the Bank of England members basically said he didn't put the number on it. It was a spin later, but he pointed out that house prices have gone up about 20% in the last two years. And he was basically making the case that you could go back to that level and financial stability in the UK would be fine. So if you've even got the Bank of England sort of saying that, well, look, at the end of the day, 20% is not a big deal, then 30% actually doesn't sound ridiculous at all. Yeah, so clearly they wouldn't mind it going down that much. Now, listen, um, going back to pre-pandemic days and to today, there's one thing in the UK where you really can get value. It wasn't houses then, it still isn't houses now. But we've been talking, you and I, over the last however many years about how cheap UK equities are, and they just get cheaper and cheaper. And there's headline after headline. The last two weeks have been a classic of this. You see endless headlines pointing out that the UK market is cheap. And I was thinking to myself, if you and I had a pound for every time we'd either written or read a headline about UK equities being cheap, we wouldn't care what was cheap or wouldn't anymore because where would be probably Marbella or something like that. Anyway, we're not. Um, But the truth is that UK equities are cheap, aren't they? You can really buy into the UK and not just at the FTSE 100 level, but down into the mid cap and small cap level now and, and genuinely get value. 
Yeah, and I mean, lots of places the small in the mid caps actually better because they 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 fell harder this year. We I mean, have bounced quite a lot since uh, mid October, um, but I think the point is that this is. I mean, you wrote a column about this, or you know, an adjacent topic recently um, about how we're going back to an old normal. So I think that all of the uh, the assets that have been doing well in recent months and in the kind of past year or so are the ones that will keep doing well for a while. So we're talking things like value, the opposite of kind of growth stocks, that sort of thing. I agree on the, the, the house's point of view, but if you look at the house builders, and I know that we have various kind of ethical concerns about the house builders, uh, basically because they, they buy rubbishy houses and they've been propped up by the government and they've milked that for years. But in terms of actual kind of, you know, the price of the shares, even they don't look too bad. I can't um, do it, John. Thing, it's my it's my ESG line. Everyone's got an ESG line. Yours is, yours is tobacco, right? Some people it's alcohol. Some people it's weapons. But me, it's house builders. I couldn't bring myself <laughs> to buy shares in any company that builds the quality of crappy housing we have in the UK. I can't do it. I can't do it. It's a moral step too far. And yeah, my bar's but, quite low. That's basically... So this is this is my equivalent to Russia for you. That's that's what I, that's what I like to hear. Um, yeah, but I mean the other thing I looked at the other day actually was private equity investment trusts, and that one really kind of surprised me actually because I thought you know we've had this crash in the uh, you know the kind of really growthy stuff. Um, as a result, the kind of privately listed stuff is going to come down in value a lot. But whenever you start to look at the historic discounts that these trusts are trading on, you are talking about kind of 2008 levels of expectation. And the underlying value of these assets was not marked up as much as something in perhaps, you know, Cathy Wood's portfolio, for example. So even there, to me, it's starting to look as if, well, actually, yeah, you can probably go in, you know, put some money in there and for the long run, you'll probably be happy enough. But can you trust the net asset values? Can you trust the NAVs on this stuff? Where Do they revalue often enough? I know the discount is, is supposed to compensate us for that. But if these trusts are not revaluing those unlisted assets more than once every six months, God knows what's in there. No, I mean, you can't you can't trust the NAVs um, kind of like on, on the face value, which is why the discounts are so large. But you're talking about discounts that are twice as large as they have been. And like I said, that you've only ever seen kind of like 2008, 2011 during the Eurozone crisis. Um, and also, if you're kind of looking at analysts like Numis, etc., they tend to do their own kind of calculated nav. And even then, with a slightly more realistic net asset value, you're still talking about kind of discounts of, you know, 30 to 40% or certainly significantly higher than the kind of long-term average. And sometimes the long-term average for some of these trusts is, you know, over 20 years. So they have seen... A lot of ups and downs. I mean, I, yeah, I, I agree. My inclination is to be sceptical, but even taking that into account, it, you know, I'm, I'm kind of struggling to make the case that they're not decent-looking value. Okay, well, I'll accept more that. Rash forecasting I was going to say, you and your rash... <laughs> You're making a lot of rash forecasts at the moment. I'm going to call this to a halt here before you say something you really don't want to say. Sell houses, buy private equity trusts, and what comes next? Who can know? Right. Our guest today has a completely different approach to investing to, I think, the one that John has. John, thank you very much. Thanks, Bill. Welcome back. 
Welcome to Merrin Talks Money, the podcast in which people who know the markets explain the markets. I'm Merrin Sunset Webb. This week, we're having a conversation with Tom Slater, who is the co-manager of Bailey Gifford's Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. It is the UK's most popular investment trust. Look at the buy and sell lists of any of the platforms and you'll see it right up there at the top. Specializes in finding spectacular, interesting growth companies to hold for the long term. And we're going to talk a bit about how that's worked out over the last decade and over the last year. Tom, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. I need to start by just talking a little bit about the performance of the trust. Now, I'm a long-term holder of the trust, as I think will be an awful lot of our listeners. And it's been spectacular for lots of us over the years. I mean, my holding is still up well over 500%, but I've been holding it for quite a long time now, going on 10 years, I would say. But if you've been holding it for a shorter time, things are going to feel a little bit ropier, right? Even over five years, pretty well up nearly 80%, but over a last year, down nearly 50, year to date so far, uh, down nearly 40. But of course, this is incredibly volatile stuff. I mean, we're talking, you and I, at the beginning of December, and in the last five days, the, the trust share price is up uh, 5 6%. So this is moving all over the place, but nonetheless, short per, short-term performance, uh, which I know is, is not meaningful to you in the environment of what you're trying to do long term. But nonetheless, there will be listeners out there who are looking at their portfolios portfolios going, well, I don't really expect that. Um, although maybe maybe they should have. So can we just start by talking, um, there's quite a lot to, to dig into here. Start by talking about the, the, the macro market environment. So why it is that uh, as a whole, uh, this happened and how you expect it to resolve itself again on a market-wise rather than, than stock-wise basis. Yeah, of course. Um, I think that the the starting point for this discussion has to be, what are you trying to do for your shareholders? Um, and a lot of funds will try to promise to be all things to all people. Um, we don't do that. Our, our clearly defined purpose is to pursue long-run capital appreciation uh, by investing in the world's uh, most promising growth companies over long periods of time. And embracing the volatility that goes with that, um, nothing nothing goes smoothly um, upwards with, without without problems or, or interruptions in in this world, and, and we shouldn't try to pretend that that is the case. Um, and and so you know, we 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 accept volatility in 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 pursuit of that long term aim of of capital appreciation. Um, we can we can delve into that that more as a philosophy if if it's of interest. Um, so so that's the, the the context. And if if you look at what has driven the the trust performance over long periods of time, it is very little to do with the market and uh, much more about the contribution of a small number of exceptional companies. Um, we think that's what what drives returns in in the long run. We also believe that you know if you're going to pay for active fund management, um, you want a fund manager to back their convictions to offer you an exposure that's very different to the one that you'll get by just investing in the index. Um, and that's that's really how we earn our fees. So so you you talk about the the performance and and the short run horizon and and the long run horizon. And so over over long periods of time. Yeah, the, the performance is is strong, but the outcome in any any one year can be extremely volatile, and that's been to the detriment of of shareholders over the past year. Um, and it was a huge benefit the year before. And you know, I I would I would argue that 
we aren't idiots for, for the returns we've generated in, in the past year, just as we were not geniuses for the return that, that we generated previously. It's, it's the it, volatility is inevitable and we must focus absolutely on the fundamentals of the companies. You know, do you believe that the opportunities are large, that this company has competitive advantages, that it's run in a way that it will drive returns for shareholders? and ignore those those big fluctuations in prices that are an inevitable part of, of owning stocks and shares. But I mean, I think a lot of people, including me, might might ask you about the market environment in which you've been operating in that, as you say, the, the brilliant returns that you've made over the last decade or say doesn't necessarily make you geniuses, but you have obviously been brilliant, interesting, interesting and very good stock pickers, but also you have benefited hugely from the very low interest rate environment and the craze for growth, uh, which, which you started, of course, at Bailey Gifford, the craze for growth and the craze for these very, very long duration assets. And so the market environment has been extremely positive for your style of investing. There's been massive momentum behind it. And it, I think, is, is clear that we did reach something close to bubble conditions or possibly beyond bubble conditions towards the end of last year. And the market environment is now not necessarily friendly to your style of investing. So there is, I think, still a discussion to be had around the fact that the difference between the fundamentals of a company and the business and the price for which which you pay for it. So it may be that a company is, is brilliant and still doing brilliant things and still has a fabulous future, but is not worth what people were paying for it at the end of last year. And that's going to be a, a long-term headwind for the trust. Well, I, think, I think there's two different um, two different issues there. So you know, I, I think it, one of the challenges of investing through this, let, let's say the, the period since the end of, of 2019, as we've had the COVID shock um, and and then reopening, is that you, you had um, very loose um, monetary conditions. You, you had risk-free rates basically go to zero or even even negative. And you had a repricing of assets across the board, reflecting that change in the risk-free rate. Um, and then that is, has now reversed to, to a large extent. Um, now, yes, that, that benefited um, long-duration growth stocks, the type of things that, that, that we're interested in. in. If you go back to 2020, it's, it's been a headwind over the past year. Um, the 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 other part though that you you have to remember is that what what's driven performance is not just a, a, a repricing of stocks relative to, to to their prospects but actually the delivery of of on, on the part of those companies you know tesla today is um a a a vastly bigger company than it was in 2019. You know, if it's if that's measured by the number of vehicles it's delivering or the the, the size of the profits that it's generating, um, and that's that's true of a number of of the companies that we invest in. So yes, there is, has been this sort of market phenomena, if you like, of the of 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 how how highly do you value that that income stream, but you've you know, the, you've also had a lot of fundamental progress, and and so there's there's those two things going on. And so if you if you then bring that to the, the second part of your question about what happens next, then is, is there a headwind to growth companies? Um, my, my reading of, of the, the you know, you, you've had a you've, you've had this valuation component which has both come and gone. And so the way I think of it looking forward is, you know, are these companies delivering? 
you know, can they grow substantially? And in the short run, I think there's challenges because of um, the economic environment, um, you know, the, the rising interest rates, the, the, the likelihood of, of recession in various developed economies. Um, but if you look at you know, what what the companies are actually doing, are we going to are we going to own a lot more electric vehicles in five years than we do today? You know, is the is is our source of power generation moving? Is is the the way that we're treated for healthcare ailments changing? You know, all of those trends suggest that actually, from a from a company fundamental point of view, despite the the short term headwinds, that actually the long term prospects are pretty bright. So so I don't see it as there being a particular headwind as we look out over the next five or ten years. Mm-hmm. But isn't the question really not, can they continue to grow? Are they the companies that you hoped they were? But can they grow to such an extent that they can validate their still relatively high valuations? I mean, they're different questions, right? And I know that that at Bailey Gifford, you very often say, well, valuations aren't the point because anything that we choose is going to outgrow any valuation it has on a given day if it does what we think it's going to do. But that view must surely have slightly changed since last year. It depends slightly what you mean by very high valuations. Now, if you if you mean um, if it, you know, the multiple of today's sales or today's profits are high um, relative to the rest of the market, um, well, I, I think that that doesn't necessarily mean you have a high valuation. Um, now, I, I absolutely would accept the point that um, um, stocks whose profits are far out into the future and therefore have a high short-term multiple have been punished much more than other stock market companies over the past year. Um, but and, and that premium that they've enjoyed has eroded very significantly relative to its history. Um, but, but I come back to, you know, the, what's the philosophy of the fund? And, and it is growth, growth at an unreasonable price. And what we mean by that is... It doesn't sound attractive, Tom. <laughs> it doesn't sound attractive. You've got to get rid of the unreasonable Well, it's, it's been there in the annual report for the past 10 years for all to, all to see. I know. You know it's, and, but what we mean is not that these companies are unreasonably expensive, but that for the ones that we're right about, it will have been an unreasonably low price to have paid. And for the ones that we're wrong about, it will have been unreasonably high. But what we're fairly sure about is that these, these assets are mispriced. And if you look at the delivered returns, it's much more about that small number of companies that have proven to be far, far more successful than the, the market ever anticipated. Okay, this is a, can I just interrupt and say, this is a brilliant way to look at it, that everything in the portfolio is the wrong price. Absolutely everything. Um, but a small percentage of them are massively too cheap and the rest are grotesquely overpriced. But the ones that are massively too cheap at the moment will drive long-term outperformance. Their outperformance will be so superior to the underperformance of the others that the initial mispricing is irrelevant. That well, that's been the experience if you if you look at the past decade. Um, you know, and and that is the experience if you look at you know, broader stock markets over long periods of time. But it's but it's you know it's getting at this. You know, one of the questions you're asking is about the price of growth assets in general, and. Prices are really difficult to predict. Now, there's maybe p- people, who, um, investors whose specialization is in, in forecasting prices of assets. Um, and, and maybe some people are good at that, but we don't claim to be. Um, but what we do believe is that in the long run, prices will follow fundamentals and that you've got a much better chance 
of analytically of predicting the fundamentals of companies than you have of how those assets will be priced and how they will be priced relative to you know whether whether it's value stocks or or, or bonds or whatever other asset and so you know, that, that that pricing phenomenon has absolutely dominated the returns over the past couple of years um, but if you extend the time horizon to five years ten years we we don't think it matters that much. Yeah, although a lot of strategists would now say that we should be trying to unlearn everything we've learned about markets over the last 10 years, possibly even the last 30 years, because the environment going forward is so changed that the valuation environment won't go back to where it was last year for decades. Well, I think you come back to what we weren't investing, and, and I don't believe our, our shareholders are investing to in the, in the hope of that market environment. You know, what 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 we're investing for is in in the belief that backing some of these companies that really are building the future of the global economy um, will deliver returns to shareholders. And you know, I think that you know, one of the one of the consequences of the environment that you're talking about is that there has has been an abundance of capital to fund companies that are going after big opportunities. And actually, that makes it really quite tough to build competitive advantage. You know, if you are, I don't know, building a, if you if you're building rockets, if you're building a, a super fast delivery network, um, and you set out to do it, and ten other companies easily get a billion dollars of funding to go after the same opportunity, um, then it just is that much harder. But I think in an environment where people are people are more wary about providing capital, actually, those that have got an edge whether it's their structural position, whether it's the culture of the business, whether it's just getting a head start, um, stand much greater chance of actually building on that edge and, and building a, a long-term return-generating business that's that's attractive to shareholders. And hopefully those are the ones that you have. Yeah, we, we, we have a relatively concentrated portfolio. This this is not a scattergun ah. approach to investing in these companies. We we didn't invest in you know the 2019 vintage of growth companies, the 2020 vintage of growth companies. You know, we make a handful of investments each year because we believe in the five, 10-year vision that that company is trying to pursue. Um, and you know, sometimes that approach will be in, in favor and you, you get an environment like, like 20, 20, 20, 20, 20, 21, where money has been thrown at these companies. And in other times, it'll be, you know, it'll be a much harder environment. And we're, we're looking for the management teams that can, can manage through that process. And we hope to be consistent partners to them over, over the course, whether that's in, in good times, um, in you know, the 2020s, actually, I should, I should caveat calling 2020 good times, but from a capital provision point of view, uh, or whether it's, you know, as, as the environment we find ourselves in today, where people are worried about recession, where it's, where it's hard to raise, raise finance. Yeah, I mean, it is a very concentrated portfolio, the top 10 holdings, so what, over 40% of the portfolio? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you'd be wary of you know just looking at the total number of holdings because because there is a high degree of stock ranking. You know, if you put it another way, the top thirty count for eighty percent of the assets. So, so absolutely, it's a concentrated portfolio, um, and it's you know that again, that's that's what we believe our our role is. You know, if you if you want a, a diverse um, set of companies by the index, pay a few basis points to do so you know i think that's a that's a perfectly rational decision if you're going to pay an active fund manager then first of all don't pay them too much make sure that they keep their fees to a minimum and then make sure that they they are doing something different um and 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 really providing you a genuinely different exposure for that fee success is more than a destination it's a path you take one step at a time 
It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. And we talk about two parts of the portfolio quickly before we move on to talking about individual stocks, which, as you know, is all anybody ever wants to hear about. <laughs> they don't want to hear about all this generalist stuff. Um, they're waiting for this, what they consider to be the stock trips at the end. They won't be stock trips, by the way, listeners. Um, and can I ask you first about the uh, Chinese exposure? And one of the things that, that you always say, and quite rightly, is that you focus on the fundamentals of an individual company, not so much on the politics around them, not on the global environment, not on not on the, the macroeconomic environment, but the company. And in, in China, that hasn't sort of quite worked out has it so some of the some of your holdings there you've been selling down on the basis that the political and regulatory environment has really been changing against them you know i i I guess one sort of clarifying point is you know we don't we don't think that we operate in a vacuum and we can only look at companies Um, of course there must be context to to what you're doing in an an investment portfolio Um, but the the way i would sort of uh, characterize it is we we don't think that um considering macroeconomic variables is is the right context um, because they're extremely difficult to predict. We don't claim any expertise in that. Um, instead, I'd say that the, the macro context that is, has been really important to us, if you look over the past 10 years, is that we've seen some of these sort of exponential technology trends, which are actually really quite predictable. Um, so, so Moore's law, the number of, of transistors you can get on a semiconductor chip for, for a dollar, or the, um, the, the cost of sequencing a base pair of DNA, or the cost of, of training a machine learning model, or which, whichever trend you, you, of these you, you wish to pick. But there have been actually these, these really fundamental and actually quite predictable um, um, sets of, of, of progress that have enabled all sorts of things from a, from a company perspective. Um, so, and, and so one of those contexts, if you like, is that we've seen China's emergence as a global economic superpower 
um, tied with the fact that you've you've had a degree of entrepreneurialism and and creativity and dynamism in the private sector that that we really have only uh, seen elsewhere in in the west coast of the US and so we've been really interested in in that set of companies i think one of the things that that we've we've missed or we've been slow to if you like is is this changing attitudes to china in the us and the you know, the moving from this environment where China's economic development was to be encouraged and supported um, to one where you, there's much more of dynamic of, of great power competition. And um, you know, there's, there's no longer this um, drive to see, see China succeed economically. Um, and at the same time, you know, you've had a set of, set of issues domestically in China where the agenda is, is, of government has, has moved on and it's been a much more difficult operating environment for, for, for private companies in China, particularly in the, the technology sector, particularly the marketplace type business model that sits between consumers and, and the underlying suppliers. Um, and so you know, I think we've you know, been critical of, of ourselves. I think we've just been slow to recognize that in the scale of, of the waiting that we've had in China. Um, now, when it comes to moving that on, I think it's really important to, again to go back to the individual companies. You know, which which are the companies that that changing backdrop um, makes things more challenging for, um, and which are the companies that are well aligned with that with that different environment. And so, what you've seen in the portfolio is it is a shift away from some of these big online platform models, um, and. and based on concerns about actually what's the growth trajectory for these companies if you look out over the next five or ten years. Okay, so that's that's a shift. The, and it makes sense. The other one I wanted to ask you about, the other sort of largest part of the portfolio that that I'm sure people ask you about all the time is the, the unlisted component as a whole. So the private component, and we're hearing a lot in the market at the moment about how great it is to be in private equity in a market environment like this because it's holding up so well. Um, and isn't that great that private equity is uh, you know, not underperforming in quite the same way as everything else? But of course, we all know, we all know that that's uh, not true and that, of course, private equity investments will be, in fact, performing just as badly as anything else were you to attempt to sell them and were you to everybody to value them correctly relative to, to listed investments. So you know, that's a big concern in the market. And you've now got, what is it, sort of about 30% of the trust is in unlisted investments. Um, can you just reassure us on that? Okay, so I think you, you're, you're absolutely right. So, so there's two, is, two issues to slightly separate. Um, one is, um, you know, the, if you don't revalue your private investments very often, then of course they seem like they're holding up very well. But you know, as 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 you rightly say, if your if your listed peers stock prices have fallen by fifty percent, then your own valuation has fallen by fifty percent. Um, and so the question is, do you do you acknowledge that or not? And so, from the point of view of of Scottish Mortgage and our asset value, um, we. Uh, revalue these assets extremely regularly based on what um, listed stock markets are doing. So there's no, you know, let's let's just pretend you know, the world hasn't changed. Our, our, our own asset value is very up to date, and, and we've published statistics about the the hundreds of, of times we've 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 looked at the valuation of these assets over the course of of this year, for example. So I really have no concern that the the book value of Scottish mortgage is overstated in in this environment. 
Um, I think there's a um, there's, there's a, a different set of issues around how how companies value themselves. And so, you know, if you're a private company, you've got a, a different set calculus than if you're a public company at this point. Um, you, know, you 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 don't have to acknowledge what's going on in the world around you if you need to, unless you have to raise new money. And so, what you see is companies are putting off the day they have to raise new money, either by reducing their spending plans, laying off employees, um, you know, just just. Um, and, and if they do raise money, they can also do it in, in a structured way, which doesn't necessarily mean they have to embrace the current economic environment. Um, and so we've been um, relatively slow in deploying capital into private companies over the course of the past year, given the changing environment. Um, but on the, but but equally, I think at some point that that changes and it will become attractive to to start deploying capital into private companies and but but I, I i don't feel we're at that point um yet until until they've accepted the reality that you described okay so it's a waiting game waiting for private companies to fully understand that the old days aren't coming back and they're going to have to change their own valuations if they want to raise more capital at which point um at which point uh, people like you with plenty of said capital uh, should find fabulous opportunities yeah and i mean there's a danger in all these things in in generalizing right because um we we also have private companies that are doing extremely well and 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 this speaks to the point i think that to, to us, we're just trying to invest in attractive growth companies. And actually, whether they're private or public doesn't really matter a great deal. Um, you know, I don't see private companies as riskier than public companies. They're not smaller than public companies. Um, you know, they, they, they're, they're assets that actually in most other areas would probably have been listed companies. It's just the, the specifics of the environment we find ourselves in today. So if you look at a company like SpaceX, um, in 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 access, you know, driving down the cost of access to space, you know, that that company you, you you can see in 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 news stories about raising new money has has been performing extremely well. Um, or if you look at if you look at our largest private holding, which is Northvolt, which is a, a producer of um, batteries for electric vehicles in Europe, um, again performing extremely well. You, you, you can see that adoption of of electric vehicles is rising. You know, for all the geopolitical um, issues that we talked about previously, having domestic supply of of batteries, or at least um, a European supply of of batteries, and and controlling that supply chain, is becoming more geopolitically important. So their prospects have improved a lot over the past year. Um, and so so you know yes, it's gloom and doom. Yes, we're marking the the prices of these these assets down in in line with what's happening to public stock markets. But actually, underlyingly. You know, there's a mix from those that are doing very well, like SpaceX to Northvolt, to to others, which actually the the withdrawal of funding at an earlier stage in their development is is big, being a really a really big headwind. Do you think that um, I mean, the last ten years or so have have seen this huge shift from from companies, uh, growth companies in particular, staying away from public markets and and staying in private markets way way longer than they would have previously. As it gets harder to raise money outside the listed environment, which it slightly feels like it, it might over the coming decade. Do you see possibly companies returning to public markets or has the regulatory overlay and transparency difficulties of being listed now become so so extreme that companies are likely to, to stay private in the way they have for the last decade? Is there a shift back coming or not, do you think? I, I really don't know, is the honest answer. Um, you know, there is, a, there is a lot of capital 
I think waiting in the wings in, in private markets. I, I you know, I, yes, it's is the supply is scarce at the moment, and and activity has has dropped generally. But I, I don't think there's necessarily a structural change in in the supply of capital. Um, I think what's what's important to my mind is just to have the flexibility to to be agnostic, if you like. And so, you know, that we've we've been able to 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 go after these companies where they have been over the past ten years. If if in the next ten years that's in public markets, great. Um, but it's I think the you know, the role we're playing for our shareholders again is you know, get getting access to these companies, particularly if they stay private, is is very difficult for an individual investor. And it's actually very difficult for an institutional investor because you know, the, when, once, you've, once you're in an environment where companies are choosing their shareholders, um, then the question becomes, what do you bring other than capital? And I, and I think our reputation as being, as being long-term and serious investors in growth companies in public markets, you know, having a 10-year average holding period in public markets really matters when, when founders are considering um, who they want as their shareholders. And so having that dynamic, but allowing the individual shareholders of Scottish Mortgage to get access to these assets, again, at a low fee level, not the, the types of fee levels you, we've become accustomed to in private equity, is, is a really important part of the job we're, we're trying to do. It must be really tough, Tom, to sell companies when you have this long-term relationship with them and you talk about being partners with them over long periods of time and 10-year holding periods, etc. When you look at a company then and you say, well, actually, we're near the end of our holding period and either it's, it's too expensive or it's not growing anymore or whatever it is, that's a tough relationship to break. Yeah, that's right. And I think that the, it, it ought to be. You know, if if you're a serious owner of a business, if you you haven't just been sort of um, anonymous, anonymously sort of trading bits of paper, if if you've tried to act like an owner, then actually moving on ought, ought to be something that's quite difficult to do. Um, and you know, I think the, the 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 way that I would articulate it to our to our holdings to, to companies is you know, it goes back to the point we were talking about earlier. We have a very concentrated portfolio. Not owning a stock doesn't mean that we have a negative opinion of a stock. It's just that we we own relatively few, um, and we, we we the companies that we own are tied to a very clear philosophy and process. Um, you know, we have very demanding growth ambitions for our companies, um, and it may be that a company just doesn't match up to to that. You know, to 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 what what we're doing in the investment philosophy, and so you know, if 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 it makes more sense for other types of investors to own it, then that's you know, that that's not something personal about the management team. It's not a criticism of the company. It's just saying, look, you don't really fit with the you know the growth criteria that we have as we look out over the next five or ten years. And so, just having that grown-up conversation with with management teams is, you know, it's it's hard, but I think it's it's you know, it's Again, it comes back to not trying to be all things to all people. Yeah. Okay, well, let's talk about some of the companies that do fit, that are growing, that you're still really happy with. Let's look at the the top 10. Are there any in there that stand out for you at the moment that you're particularly happy with? Um, and let's, let's start at number one, um, Moderna. Um, you know, that, so, horrible performer, horrible performer recently. So, <laughs> so it depends what you mean by performance. So, you know, I, I look at... Um, I look at what they're doing, and it's just so exciting and and important what they're going to do over the next decade. So so we've become familiar familiar with this company because of its its COVID vaccine. 
And um, I think the first the first stage of what they're going to transform is respiratory disease. And so you know, you, this season, people have been getting their COVID shot. They've, they've been getting their flu shot. Um, the first step is to combine those two things. Um, so let's just have one shot. Um, now, it doesn't sound like a big deal, but in terms of um, the logistics, in terms of com patient compliance, that, that would be a significant step forward. Um, the next is that when we talk about flu, there are actually about 10 different viruses that make up what we consider to be flu. And so you have two different dynamics at work. You, if you take your flu shot, um, you've, you've got an issue where, where experts decided which strain of the flu to target a year in advance. And we don't know if that's going to, to be right a year later when we all take the flu shot. But also the, there are these nine other respiratory diseases which this shot doesn't help you with. Um, what the Moderna's technology promises is, first of all, greater accuracy in that and effectiveness in that flu shot itself, but also the ability to target these nine other viruses and ultimately combine that into a single shot. And the, the impact that can have on healthcare systems, which are you know, clogged up by with patients in, in hospitals with, with respiratory illness over, over the winter months, is huge. Um, and that's the least exciting bit of Moderna. The, the, the next part is actually looking at latent viruses. And so there's there's 80 odd viruses that, that we know um, of the circulating population, about five of which have have um, have, have a, um, a vaccine. Um, but we know that the health consequences of these viruses, um, so if that's CMV, EBV, um, HIV, um, are, are very serious. Um, so, so about 30 to 50 percent of cancers have um, a viral sort of origin, um, and what what Moderna are planning to do is to go after all of these viruses, both with with vaccines um, in, in younger individuals, but also vaccine-based treatments to suppress the virus in older individuals, and it can start having this impact on these big disease categories that we don't think of as viral, like cancer, um, like MS, um, and then. Find the final part is personalized cancer vaccines. So can you actually um, start treating patients with cancer um, by using personalized treatments um, based on the RNA technology? And all of these things are engineering challenges. And are these all based on the mRNA technology that was used in the COVID vaccine? They are. And, and so as, as it's, and it is platform technology. So, so we've seen the one output of this platform technology. And what, what do I mean by this? It's that you know, there, is, there is a molecule which then the, the scientists can go in and modify and edit to, to, to activate our own cells in, in defense against all these various illnesses. Um, and what does that mean? Well, if you, if you, look, at, um, if you look at the way that um, drugs are designed, um, efficacy is not usually a problem. Yet 90% of drugs don't make it from the clinic to into patients. Why? Well, it's toxicity. It's that they have unintended consequences elsewhere in the body. Now, if you are using a, a single molecule, which you're just adjusting, which, it, which occurs in nature, is well studied, is well understood, you start to, you, you avoid these toxicity and unintended consequences. Um, and then you can start to talk about a much, much higher success rate. Than, than we're used to in drug development. 
And so, to, to my mind, this is this is not that different from what we've talked about in in information technology for for the past decade. It's programming. It's just that we're programming our own cells um, using using the the, the the tools of genetics um, rather than 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 software programs. There might be a, a, a leap there to get everyone comfortable with that idea, <laughs> but perhaps when they find out the potential results, they'll get comfortable faster than one might expect. I think yes. I mean, and and that's what slows down the healthcare system, of course. But you know, none none of these things are, are going to to arrive in patients without having gone through rigorous testing regimes. But when you when you start to look at the data, uh, the outcomes for patients, the the safety profile, I think that's what will convince people. Take another one, because you 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 know you made us all believe in Moderna, and we no longer think for a second that the forty percent odd uh, share price fall over the last however long is relevant. We're all rushing out to buy it for the long term, um, and it makes us understand the process a little more. Is there, is there another that you can pull from the top ten that that you feel similarly positively about? Obviously, you feel positively about all of them. Um, pick one we've we've been adding to it for the past year, Mercado Libre. Um, so this is a, um, a Latin American or South, South American uh, e-commerce platform, businesses in Brazil, Mexico, Argentina, etc. Um, what we really like about it is that um, in the, the commerce business is continuing to, to make the experience better and better for buyers. Um, at the same time, it's using that position in commerce to build a finance business. So that's partly in payments, but it's also in, in lending. It's in driving the efficacy of the financial system, what the financial system can do for, for individuals um, in Latin America. Um, it's it's a, a founder management team who know that market inside out, um, who have been very good at um, fending off the encroachment from the the, the big global platforms, um, not not by relying on local regulations, but just by out competing them in in those markets, and it, this is a, a team that's operated through very difficult economic conditions for the past ten years, very high interest rates for the past ten years. There's nothing new about what's going on in in this environment for them. Um, so that that would be a more conventional example. Of, of a business that has just been a phenomenal executor, which we think is is available at a very attractive price in this you know widespread sell off of, of growth assets that, that we've talked about. Brilliant, Tom. Thank you so much for joining us today. I think that would have been really useful for all the holders of the trust out there. Hugely appreciated, and I hope we can talk again in uh, maybe six months or something and see where we're at. Um, thank you very much. It's it's great to be to be here talking with you. Thanks for listening to this week's Merrin Talks Money. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, if you like our show, please head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, this episode was hosted by me, Merrin Somerset Webb. It was produced by Samasadi, editing and sound designed by Blake Maples. Special thanks to Tom Slater and to John Stepick. Don't forget to sign up to John Stepick's newsletter, Money Distilled, which is excellent. The link to do so is in the show notes.
I'm John Seifer. And I'm Jerry O'Shea. We spent over 30 years in the CIA uncovering global conspiracies. Conspiracies aren't just a theory to us, which is why we started our podcast, Mission Implausible. Everyone has questions about conspiracy theories, but with our background, we can actually answer those questions. Anyone can just start screaming about microchips and Jewish space lasers, but it's our mission to remove the bull and get down to what's real. Listen to Mission Implausible on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.